Good to see you, brothers and sisters. This winter and spring, we're together in 1 John. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, open up to the book of 1 John. It's going to be toward the back of the Bible. Revelation, then Jude, and then the Johns, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. We began here in January, and we'll be here probably through May, this winter and spring, together, abiding together in 1 John. Who is John? And some of you are newcomers and jumping in with us along the way. I'm going to do a, a little bit of rewind so that we know kind of who we are, who we're with. Um, John was a fisherman, along with his brother and the family and his father's business of fishing there on the Sea of Galilee. He was called to be a follower of Jesus. Um, he then became one of the twelve disciples, who then were appointed as apostles. At the time of the writing of this letter, he's an old man. He's the last living apostle. He is seen his friends die, martyred for the faith, including his brother James. In this gospel that he wrote, in the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's not that Jesus didn't love Peter and didn't love James or didn't love Matthew. It's not that he didn't love these others. It's just John identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And my question to you is, are you a disciple whom Jesus loves? Not that Jesus doesn't love the person sitting beside you or the person behind you, but you're so overwhelmed by Jesus' love for you that you just almost, that's what best defines you. I'm just a person Jesus loves. I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves. There's no greater descriptor than to know this. I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves. And so John wrote, and he's going to talk about love. Love is this word that's just kind of, is the fragrance through his entire letters. He wants us to know the love of God, and then he wants us to then share that love to others. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. John's writings, which is going to be the gospel, and then these three letters, and then Revelation, are the last writings of the New Testament canon. They're the latest writings, the last writings that were written, probably in in the 90s A.D., The Apostle John lived in a time in which false teachings were threatening the church. Um, One was Gnosticism, which was just a baptism of Greco-Roman, Greco or Greek philosophy, that the spirit world is superior and the material world is evil and bad. And so anything spiritual is good, anything material is bad. And so if Jesus is God come in the flesh, that really can't be. He only appeared in the flesh because he would not really take on our flesh. John opposed that, and we'll see that continually through this letter. There's also worldly powers. We're still in the Roman Empire at this time. An emperor, Nero, blamed Christianity for the great fire in 64, and thus began great persecutions. So with the false teachings and worldly powers of his day, we've got to think about the false teachings and worldly powers of our day. And the question we ask as we come into this new year, um, into this day, these evil days, is how shall we now live? But that's not where John begins. He always begins with, what shall we believe? Or better said, who? We are to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of life manifest among us. Chapter 1 of this letter, chapter 5 is going to say this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Do you believe who Jesus is and who he says he is? Do you love him? So if he's come to be the savior of sinners, are you a sinner in need of grace? Derek, I don't sin. John's going to tell us in chapter 1, oh, you're a liar. We're all sinners. We all can, can then confess our sins, and then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. How can he even do that? Because Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. And do we know Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, takes our place? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? We don't want to get to this question of how shall we now live, what do we do and not do, until we have faith in Christ. Because if we get to this question of how do we live, what do we do not do, but have no faith in Christ, we're going to end up in an empty religion. In forms of godliness, but they will have no power. So what is John teaching us in these verses of this chapter that we've been in these past couple weeks? We are to love others. We're to kind of grow up. It's time to grow up in the faith. And then today, don't love the world. Come with me to chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 7. We'll go through 17. But our time today will be just in 15, 16, and 17. But to keep it in context, let's read this glorious letter. God's word to us by this fisherman inspired by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These verses, I love just even as I saw again, that darkness is passing away. This world is passing away. Light is already shining, and those who do the will of God will abide forever. How shall we now live? Love others, grow up in the faith. That's where Pastor Christian was last week. And then this week, don't love the world. So he gets to talk about growth, and you get to grow. And I get to be the one to like come in, 
The next act, like, stop loving the world. Um, but that's where we'll be today. Today, we're going to look at verses 15 through 17, a command, do not love the world. A conditional, if anyone loves the world. And then the promise, whoever does the will of God. Do not love the world. By our sinful nature, we do not like being told what to do and what not to do. Don't tell me what not to do, Derek. And don't tell me what to do. I'll figure it out and I'll do it on my own timing. That's our nature. Our sin nature is we don't want to be told what to do and what not to do. So imagine going over to the nursery. Um, in this season of life, we're doing it over here in the Lloyd home. the adjoining, And then beautiful little babies, cute little toddlers. And imagine just getting a couple of those toddlers and just kind of spreading out some animal crackers in front of them. And just say, I'm going to, I just say, I got to go get something out of the room. Just sit here and just watch these for me and don't eat any until I get back. And then leave the room and then peek in the door. And what are you going to see happen? You're going to see some inner turmoil. I mean, somebody just quickly grab it. You can maybe have some who are the firstborn types who are just going to be like, oh, what should, should do? What would you expect to happen? Don't do this. You put something in front of them that tastes good, that they want instant gratification with, and they're told to delay it, to wait. Now, after you've done that, imagine coming back to the sanctuary. There's sweet and adorable folks in here as well. Come up to where I'm standing. Come up here to this pulpit and look out to everyone and say, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then follow everyone home, peek in their doors, and see what happens. By our sinful nature, we don't like being told what we shouldn't do, especially this command not to love the world. What does this mean, Derek? I'm not supposed to enjoy a favorite meal, a beautiful sunset, a great book like Lord of the Rings, or fantastic movies like The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I mean, careful. In my annual rhythm of life, I've just come off another Lord of the Rings a movie marathon this weekend. I'm going to keep this down. I've got to keep it down. Dear Lord of the Rings, do you love it more? To, if I love it more than the Lord, it's idolatry. So anything that's a greater love than the Lord is idolatry. But we need to define this word world. Do not love the world. Let's define the word world. And this is an important word in John's writing. John uses it in a range of meanings. The Greek word is cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, but it has a range of meanings. It can mean natural creation, like coming to worship and seeing how great thou art. And we're singing about the woods and singing birds and so forth, and natural creation and giving God praise for it. In the history of the Greek language, cosmos would sometimes mean ornament, cosmos. And then in the English, cosmetic. We become ornamental by putting makeup on the face. But the universe or the world globe is kind of an ornament that is hung here in our solar system. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, John 1.10. He came into this natural world. The natural world was made through him, but the world did not know him. That's a different usage we'll get 
to it just a second. The world means natural creation. Where have you been in this world? Think of all the natural things you've seen or experienced and the beauty of them. I've had the privilege of just seeing waterfalls and black sand beaches in Hawaii. I've seen red rocks and the Grand Canyon now where my brother lives in Arizona. I've had an opportunity to be in Kenya, and you get so far away from any kind of light pollution, the Milky Way looks like the photos on the science textbook. The hills and the locks of the Scottish Highlands. There's no place like home, though. I know we always want to go out there to see the world, but the world that's created right here in our backyard is so beautiful. We live in such a very beautiful corner of the world. What do you love about this natural world? We love it in the sense that it's created by God, and we love Him because it's given to us by Him. We can live in it. That's one, the natural creation. But what about the realm of humanity? Now, we're not talking like, there's no moral overturns, overtones here. It says humanity, the world of people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in this letter in chapter 4, and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. We're not talking about now rocks and trees. Creation is going to be remade, a new creation. But he didn't come to save them. He came to save us, fallen people. So world doesn't always necessarily even mean in every individual person, but came to humanity. He so loved humanity, us created in his image. Have you had the opportunity to experience peoples of different cultures and backgrounds? It's so beautiful, this humanity that has now filled this earth. There's a third usage of world, and it has more ethical or moral um, connotations, and that's where we're going to be more today. And one writer writes this, the world is changed. I can feel it in the water, I feel it in the earth, and I can smell it in the air. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places, but still there is much that is fair. And though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. All right, that's my only Lord of the Rings quote today. Let's put two in there together. That's world, where there's darkness that's now come in, and there's grief now mingled with love, sin, and evil. This is sinful humanity in opposition to God. And this is the most common usage of the word world in John's writings. This is the evil, the evil systems of human society, and it is the sinful values of our cultures. John writes, the world lies in the grip of the evil one, 1 John 5. The world rejected Jesus when he came, John chapter 1. It does not know him, 1 John chapter 3, and it hates his followers. Upper room teaching in John 15 and 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. 
So please, world, get this straight. We go out into nature and we can appreciate it. We don't worship it. We don't worship it. But we live in this world that God's created us and given us existence in and we praise the creator. We're without excuse. Everyone has, no, no one has an excuse here to praise God as creator. We go into this world and we're to resist it, that which is evil, and we're to also reject that world of sin, even as we go and love people in this world. I have a question for you, and it just almost seems basic. Does a fish know what water feels like? I have an aquarium over my office, got some fish from the fish store, carried them from the store in a bag of water to put them back into water. Does a fish know what water feels like? They don't, how can you not know what water feels like if you're always in water? Water is normal. My next question, do we really know what the world feels like? We are born into this evil world as sinful people. This is our natural habitat, sin and evil. This is what we're swimming around in. This is what we're breathing in into our gills. The world. We don't know any different, except we are created in God's image. And there's a part of that Imago Dei in us, that being created in God's image, that we know that there's right and wrong and that there's something beyond us, beyond this tank that we're now in. There's a natural revelation to humanity that there is a creator God. And we can go to a lot of different people groups, and you'll see it in their natural laws. Murder is grievous. Stealing, lying is wrong. Now sometimes that will even get suppressed, and God will just hand us over even more to our passions. The more that people and cultures suppress the truth of God and so normalize sin and evil, they don't even know the water they're swimming in. So to resist and reject the world, we must know what the world is. But we can't define it because we're in it. So to recognize the world of sin and evil in these days, we've got to have something come from without to catch us out of this, to pull us out of this water. This is part of what it means to grow up spiritually. This is where Christian was last week. Children, by nature, by their development, are naive, believe what they're told. They trust the world. And so parents have got to scoot them around from dangers and, and turn that off so they don't see that. That's what being an adult is. It's keeping children safe from the world because children will just believe whatever they're told. So to grow up past childhood, as Pastor Christian said last week, we've got to discern the world by really getting into God's word. Pastor Christian last week said, if you've not read through the Bible, if, you've not, if you're not digging and studying the Bible, you're still a child in the faith. There's no shame in that. It's no shame in being who we are in the faith. What's wrong is if we stay where we are in the faith. We should always be growing. And this is what it is for young men and young women in the faith. You're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. We've got to get into God's word. We've got to know the revelation of God through his word, by his spirit, to discern the evil of this world. Otherwise, we will just be like little children, tossed to and fro, 
the wave of doctrine, the next move culturally. It is with God's word, by God's spirit, that we fight the good fight of faith and overcome the evil one. So we've got to put on the full armor of God as we fight, like young men and women as they grow up into this, with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So my question here, let's apply this. What are the sin patterns and what are the evil systems that you discern in these days? See, if we're to discern the world by God's word and have the spirit actively working in us to renew our minds to become more like Christ and to be different from this world, what do we now see in these evil days? I'll give you two. Let's just practice this together. It takes, that's what Christian said last week. What's going to make a young man and a young woman be good and strong? Practice. You got to practice it. You got to discipline. So here's one. The lie of instant gratification. The lie of thinking you can have perpetual happiness in self-centered living. That's the world today. But are we, are we discerning it? Are we just kind of still just swimming through it? Consider how quickly we've gotten to this point and what point this is. Everything you need in life can now be done through a quick click. You can just click a button, press a button, and anything in your life can be taken care of. You're bored? A couple clicks. You're right there on YouTube. Down a lot of rabbit holes. You're right there on Netflix binging. You're lonely? Ah, you can do the endless scroll through social media. Talk to someone. There's someone here in our congregation who works for a social media company. And it's actually called the endless scroll. And they're just, they're just trying to hit your dopamine levels up to biochemically alter you, get your mind rewired, so you'll just, I don't want to miss anything. What's next? I don't want to miss it. Are you hungry? My goodness, now we've got DoorDash and Grubhub. You don't even have to get up. It will come to your door. Are you lustful and needing to numb that pain in your life? Ah, there's porn right there real quick. Just a couple clicks. And yet, with the accessibility and the convenience of all this, everyone is so dissatisfied and so many are depressed. That's the world we're swimming in. Easy things don't make us happy. Hard things do. And true happiness is not found in a self-centered life. But that's the world. But it's so hard when we're just swimming in the waters to just go with the flow. How does Jesus describe a happy life? Because let's use God's word to counter it. How does Jesus counter our world of instant gratification? So many verses I could go to. If we just, with God, like a day is like a thousand years. God is not in a hurry. And yet we got to just have it done now. We want change right now. And God is sovereign over time. We want to be happy now, but here's how Jesus describes happiness. Some translations actually use the word happy. Um, this one uses blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Instant gratification. Some of us are old enough to know that you couldn't just do something by a button or a click. Some of you are not. And I don't know what it's like to grow up in this world when everything can just be so quickly accessed. So I don't want to be up here as an old fogey and now, and all these youth are like, oh, that guy's like an old guy now. Listen, I'm an old fogey. It's not, the quick click is not going to make you happy. Example number two, because we want to discipline and practice this. The myth of progress. Human progress. This is a myth. Now, we're all progressing. Cultures are changing. We're always changing. We're never staying the same. But the myth of progress asserts that this present day is superior to the past and that the future will even be better. History is marching on. Technologies are advancing. But what does progress mean? Are we progressing to a utopia where it's, we're solving all the problems and we're actually going to get to a place of utopia? Because that myth is then wielded both by totalitarians and what we're heading towards is a dystopia. We're going to end up towards enslavement. We're going to end up towards genocide. And it's happening in this world and our heads are in the sand. It's happening today. This is not just in our history books. Happening today. People groups are being oppressed. But the promise of progress is that everything will be all happy and all equal. And so, since history is less superior than where we are today, it must be even erased or revised. I'll go old fogey on you again. Here we go. The progress of the screen. I've done this before, but I'm going to keep banging it till y'all hear me. When I grew up, now some of you grew up, there was no such thing as a TV. I grew up, there's at least a TV in my house, but I was across the room, and I had to get up to change the channel, which I had maybe three or four of. Then the remote control came. I didn't even have to get up. I could click the button. And then personal computer came there. And then a computer I could carry with me. And now this in my pocket, the screen is getting closer. It, it's progressing. We're, we're, we're able to do more with the screen. It's getting closer. And you think it's going to stop like right here. What's the next step? It's getting closer. The next step is we will be in the screen. It's no longer something out there. We'll be in it. And that's virtual reality. It's going to be a real life matrix. And we're going to give up all of our privacy for convenience. And um, be careful. There are big tech overlords who are looking to do this just to bring this all you don't have to get up anymore. It's all plus button. You don't have to go out. You can just experience it all in virtual reality. Think about the life progress of human nature. I've also said this. God created the world, and we see progression from Genesis 1, 2, and then we keep going. I feel like we're in a decreation now. 
And in just a span of a decade, this past decade, we've redefined marriage. We've now redefined, we've redefined gender. And do you think, is that going to stop? Are we stopping here? Have we now progressed to the point that this is where we stop? Because all these advancements and these things that we're doing, when does it stop? The next thing that we're going to go to, we're going to redefine what it means to be human. Put this word down. It will come. If you've not heard it already, it's coming. Transhumanism. It's here. And it's the next progression of artificial intelligence. And it's going to be the blending more of man and machine. And it's going to redefine what it is for us to be human. Now, I'm cool with pacemakers and hearing aids and even bionic arms. I mean, technology, it should be for the common good. But there's a... There's a line that we will cross that it will actually redefine who we are as humans, not just enhancements or helps. Genetic engineering, microchip implants, all this. But what's the logical end of this myth of progress is that we can become gods. There's technologies that if we even knew was out there right now, we would be even more fearful But please, when y'all gather in here maybe one day and have my funeral, please do not harvest all my data and like make me into some hologram or put me into some human humanoid robot to still so I can still be with you. Let me be put to rest and go be with my fathers in the presence of my Savior. Please. What does the Bible say against the myth of progress? Hmm. That knowledge of Good and evil. We'll take that fruit and we'll eat that so that we can be like God. Genesis 3 was the temptation. Technologies will advance, but what has been will be, and what has been done will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. It's the same human heart, just different technologies. We're not as smart and progressive as we think we are, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Instant gratification, progress. All, these are all the world. This is what we're swimming in. And are we loving it? Are we discerning it? Are we resisting it, rejecting it? Do you see how God's word refutes the world? To resist and reject the world, we must first recognize the world, its evil systems and its sinful values. If we don't know God's word, we won't be able to discern God, this world the sinful world. So my, my warning to, to some of you who are younger, no, I'm not going to make this a generational overstatement, but I will say it anyhow. Some of you youngers are wanting so much to be world changers. Be careful that the world's not changing you. Some of you olders, some of, some of you, some of us, are wanting just a safe, comfortable life. Careful the world will actually give that to you. Jesus followers, the world hates you because it hated him. So why are we trying so hard to be the world's friend or to make the world our ally? D.L. Moody was an evangelist in the 19th century. 
And at one of his um, rallies, a man approached him and said, Mr. Moody, that'd be a great like pastor name, like Mr. Moody. <laughs> Mr. Moody, now that I am converted, do I have to give up the world? D.L. Moody said this, no, sir, you do not have to give up the world. If you do a good ringing testimony for the Son of God, the world will give you up pretty quick. They won't want you. And this is what Jesus warned his disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15. This is what Jesus' half-brother James said in his fourth chapter of his letter, do not you know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world will make himself an enemy of God. And so John, the beloved disciple, writes, do not love the world or into the things of this world. We can enjoy the good things of this world. Good friendship, seeing different parts of it, a good hike, a good meal. But those good things, if we drop a O and they become God things, that's then idolatry. We're worshiping the crea creations and not the creature, the creator. How are we sinfully loving this world? Don't make this abstract, please. Holy Spirit, would you convict us all of the love of the world that we want? Lead us back was a heavy song. Are we loving comfort and convenience? Are we loving safety and security? Do we want the world to define purpose and meaning? Are we loving approval and affirmation from the world? Do we want power or pleasure? What is it that's in your human heart, even if it's born again by God's Spirit, is still being sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, but there's this love, that's gotta, this love of the world that has to be dealt with? The world will give you what you want. And it will enslave you in the process. So it's easy to point the finger like, look at that person. That person really loves the world. And they'll have a different love than you have. But we will still be enslaved by a different love of the world. And the, the prince of this world will give us exactly what we want in the ways that it will most tempt us. But I have this against you. Jesus writes to one church in Ephesus. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent. We repent. We confess this sin to God. If anyone loves the world, this is now the conditional. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. This is an absolute statement, but I'm going to say it absolutely. We cannot love both the world and God at the same time. I know we think we can juggle that. And I know experientially, I love God, but I'm also wrestling with this love of the world. And you feel that tension within you. But truthfully, we cannot love in the momentary choices of, in, of our thoughts and our actions. So we can't love God and the world at the same time. To love the world means that I'm disobeying God. Or to love God means that I'm resisting the world. In those momentary moments of your thoughts, actions, and so forth, we can't do both at the same time. Even as that wrestling's happening in us um, internally. To love one reveals a hatred or indifference of the other. 
And so we work out this salvation with fear and trembling. What is in the world, John says here, the desires of the flesh, cravings, lust against the will of God. It's a life dominated by our senses. One preacher says this, it's being gluttonous for food, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in our morals. It's being selfish in the use of our possessions, regardless of all their spiritual, the spiritual values, extravagant, gratification of all of our material desires. And Paul tells us, put on Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The desires of the flesh. It's a life dominated by our senses to so consume this world in pleasures and self-soothing. The love of the Father is not in us if that is where we're giving ourselves entirely. The desires of our eyes. Scriptures say that our eyes are the lamp of our body. It's through, the, through our eyes where we're primarily tempted to covet, to lust, to greed, to discontent, to the endless scroll. We're so visual. Do you ever get to the bottom and you think, oh, I'm satisfied now. It's your phone is like binging, your screen time. This phone's going to self-explode if you have any more screen time through the endless scroll. The desires of our eyes. The discerning sets his face towards wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Proverbs 17. The pride of life, this attitude of being self-sufficient and self-satisfied, this is very interesting how this was, all three of these were there at the fall. How John puts this into his letter, but they're right there at the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil, when she saw that the tree was good for food, the desire of her flesh, the desires of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Genesis 3, 5, 6 here. The delight, desire of eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The pride of life. She took up the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It was these three things. The desires of our flesh, our, the lust of our flesh, our desires of our eyes and the pride of life where we fell. And these are also seen in Jesus' wilderness temptation. Jesus, I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn some of those stones into bread? Satan tempted him. The desires of flesh. Throw yourself down from the temple pinnacle. The desires of the eyes to see how God would work. Would he be faithful to his word? Have the kingdoms of the world if you just worship me, Satan promised that's the pride of life. Friends, don't check. Like, I'm doing pretty good on two or three of those. We failed. Zero for three. The desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life. We fail. We've fallen. But Jesus stands in perfect faithfulness. And he's crucified as our sacrifice. And that's why do we know and love him? Verse 17. The world is passing away with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. For all of its evil systems and all of its sinful culture, and why start this service with Psalm 73? Like This is a long psalm Josh read for us before we finally kicked into the end in response. It's because we see the world flourishing. We see evildoers just getting what they want. 
We see them having a life of ease. And we get so frustrated and angry, actually angry to God. And then the pivot verse was, until I went to the sanctuary, to the house of God, and discerned their end. You're gonna, we're going to look at the world and say, they're living a better, easier life than us. And here I am following Jesus, and it's hard. I'm denying my, myself. And they're having ease. And the temptation is going to be, oh, I'll just dabble there. Maybe I'll just get a little bit over there. And before you know it, both feet are over there. Until we discern their end. Their end is it's temporary. It's passing away. It will not stand the test of time. Only the things of God's kingdom are eternal, and only those who do God's will will abide with him forever. Do not love the world. That's the command. But I'm going to tell you this. If we fix our eyes just on that command alone and not in context of all that we read, we may become pretty good religious people. If we're just going to say, don't love the world, and we just say, all right, well, I'm going to negate that from my life, that will make me a better person, or I'm going to extract this out of my life to make me a better person because I'm not supposed to love the world. Right, let's extract it out or negate it. This negative command, if that's how we just approach it only, we will be, end up being just good people, good folk, religious churchgoers. We'll each have our own little list of do's and don'ts. And you'll measure, you'll, you'll mod, we'll modify the list so that we're always passing. But better than this negation or extraction is displacement. Do not love the world. But what was the first command we had? Several verses above. Love God and love others. There has to be a greater love that really displaces this love of the world. Now there's, we got to be, Thoughtful and mindful, like, let's discern what are the, the lies of this world and let's extract, negate, and oppose and resist. But what's going to be most helpful in this is to just have a love of God that swells and fills our heart and then it pushes out a love of the world. Don't try to create a vacuum by not loving the world. If you create a vacuum, something else will fill it. We need God's love more. Not that he needs to love us anymore. There's more. He loves us more than we can realize. But we need to realize it more. Meditate on it. Thank him for it. And this love of God will displace the love of the world. How do you love the world less? Love Jesus more. How do you love Jesus more? Know how much he loves you. This is the world. It's passing away. It's not going to last. And the endless scroll will never satisfy. The quick clicks, the easy things will never make you happy. We're never going to our own utopia. We're going to a day in which Jesus comes again and makes all things new and right. We'll weep no more and we'll sing for joy. Because up ahead is eternity that we're looking forward to with our Savior. Do we want God more than anything in this world. God, I want to say yes, but help me to want you more and to love you more. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
take heart, disciples. Our Savior has overcome this world by becoming into it, crucified on a cross for your salvation. Take heart, disciples. The Lord has overcome this world. He's risen in glory. And he's readying a new world for us to live with him eternally. Take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. This is what he tells his disciples even before he's crucified for our salvation. Let's pray.